You you don't. I okay. Look, ten minutes ago we hey. were talking about how hot we both <laughs> no were. Comment. Um, <clears throat> so I, I'm method acting. So uh, my friend, my my one of my good friends, uh, he is a bald man. Um, he identifies uh, self identifies as bald man. Um, well, that's he, that's your problem right there. <laughs> he he went bald at a pretty early age, and it's, it was a sensitive spot for him. And um, mm. recently, the he's bald been spot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A big reflective one. Uh, <laughs> oh, this man would kill am, us. No, no. I've gone from like major anxiety to just being such a bitch. Yeah, that's the that's the antithesis. Fifteen the, seconds. That is the pipeline. The diametric usually. flip that's of it. The emotional pipeline. Um, and so his birthday came around, and uh, he recently started streaming on Twitch. It's been going really well until someone came in and started roasting him for being bald. And he did the thing where like, you kind of oh, roll with mean. it, and it becomes a good joke, and you laugh. But I knew it still bothered him. So his, his oh, yeah. partner and I coordinated a Baldoween party because his birthday's on Halloween where you have to show up as your favorite bald character. Uh, so I shaved my head to be like him. Aww. Um, so I method acted and now I now my head's very cold always. <laughs> mm. I never have that problem. It's terrible. I This is my first time yeah. being hairless. I have like eight pounds of hair. Oh, yeah. If anything, I overheat. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it until I had none. It, you don't know until it's gone. <laughs> That's the lesson today. Don't know what you got to I live in go. abject terror of losing my hair. And I just, I should be on the drugs already. Like, I have never had a more, like, I, I cannot believe my anxiety is stopping this from me because it's just fighting other anxiety. It's just, like, future anxiety about a thing that isn't, literally happening to me is not strong enough to beat the tiny anxiety of just going i can't believe you have to get a prescription for finasteride like or whatever it's called um it's yeah. like so innocuous the, as a drug like i mean maybe it's not i think innocuous. it has like is it topical side effects or is it oral uh it's oral and yeah it it is um it does have side effects that's why hmm. but yeah i mean that's I mean, how it's, i was it's, with the botox yeah. though can i be honest mm. it was an anxiety of mine until I shaved my head, and then I was like, "This is the, this is as bad as it can get," and people are being yeah. nice to me. Yeah, <clears throat> and like I like mine's creeped back a bit, but uh, like I like this, I have a couple scars I use to measure, uh, <laughs> and it's creeped back. But like, yeah, like I don't know, man. I uh, I don't know what to say. It it helped me to just do it. But oh yeah, but no, I'm not I, saying that's abject a terror is such a is such <laughs> an exaggeration. Like I'd really, it would really suck if it started happening. I really do enjoy having hair, but at the same time, I, I would just it's like dropping on my PhD. It's like I know my mindset would change after a few months. It just might suck for a while. It's just I think what's so shitty is that there is a solution I can begin doing, preventative solution I can begin doing right now, and then I haven't been doing it. Pisses me off. I'm like, yeah, it's it's so many of the problems of my life is just. Well, almost all of them is literally just anxiety. If I could just get rid of my anxiety on so many issues, at least I could be trying to do things that I think are like right. In I honestly like this whole year, I felt like such a vain bitch because like I have I'm almost fully gray under this hair now. That's mm -hmm. awesome. It's not. I hate it. Oh, I hate yeah, it sorry. so much because it's like I have just enough color left that it like looks really bad. <laughs> if I was fully silver because my grays are like silver. I that would be cool, mm -hmm. but I am not, so it looks fucked like just fucking stupid. And then I have like the aggressive forehead wrinkles, so I'm like dyeing the hair, getting the nails, getting the Botox. I'm like, man, I feel like such a vain bitch. I mean, I'm doing it all for me. I'm yeah. single, so it's like 
not doing it for anyone's well, attention. It makes you happy, right? Like, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't criticize someone for getting a tattoo. I don't know why I'd criticize someone for any other measure of body mods. I love criticizing my own tattoos. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorite indie flicks and genre movies. My name's Joseph, and I'm here with my co-hosts Lydia and Des. Yo. Hey, guys. Hello. What's going on? You're so professional with the intro. Yeah, I was actually going to comment. Thank you. I, all I hear is screaming gay voice in my head, but... Nice no, voice. it's like smooth. There's like delivery to it. It's uh, NPR it's like a nighttime voice. radio show. I'm really NPR voice. Yeah, glad I I I like the idea that I have a good voice. This is, I think this is most most group. things in my life that I'd like to do in the future will involve me soothing people to death sleep. Nice, and then sucking their blood. Working hospice. Well, their soul. You're a vampire, <laughs> a hospice vampire. Yeah, soul reaver. Yeah. You know. Nice. Oh my god! Nice. I, I'm sure you know that game. Yes, yeah, I've got all like, of I myself. played that game when I was a kid, and I literally like the idea of it scared me so much as a kid. I was like, "What the f-, f am I as as this main character? Like, I am literally eating people's souls. Uh-huh. Like, you can't not get worse." You do that every day. It's not that big of a deal. I oh I, I spent a lot of my time when I write things trying to like. This is not where I thought this I, beginning of the I podcast really, was going to really go. Like the, I really like, I love that game. I think it skewed my entire life to be like in love with like that kind of dark shit. But um, mm. I spent a lot of time in my writing trying to find fun ways to subvert those kind of tropes. So like the last D&D character I got to play was a necromancer uh, who functions not as someone who's like, ah, yeah, corpses. He's a doctor who's always late. Always. So he has great intentions. He's a terrible healer. Is someone <laughs> who uses magic to kill people an anti-necromancer? <laughs> I think well, so. Uh, if their if their magic <laughs> is like literally sucking the life force out of people, then yes. I think. But I think, if they're just like throwing a fireball at them and they subsequently die, then you I know. know. But, uh, yeah, it's and consequential. That's yeah. But, <laughs> but yes, the serious answer is, of course, exactly what you said. Yeah. But I have to dissect it. I have to. I someone has to be the pretentious asshole on this podcast. But what and we're if learning. It's not going to be you. <laughs> yeah. Wait, who's it going to be? When I ask the question, I guess someone else has to take up the mantle. I think what we learned is that I've necromancers are you. the good guys, always. You want to see your you want to see your your family pet from when you were a kid? Only one person can help you with that. Yeah, mm. I know, but then you get the pet cemetery cat. The, yep, pets gonna kind of probably kill you. Yeah, but, but what if it's it's cool? What if it's exactly the same though? What if Skippy comes back from the grave like one hundred percent? Never come the back same? right. Ah, I never don't come know. back right. You know they you don't. Try. You know they don't. What if Skippy gets hit by a fucking car and then they bring him back to life? That's not. He's not gonna be right. He's not gonna be okay. Oh, a couple treats, a pet on the head. Absolutely not. I was going to say, there's this terrible B movie that exists called Frankenhooker. <gasps> oh, I'm in. Oh, Set my fucking God. Is this where we're and it is, at? It is about exactly what you think it's about. Um, a man's fiance dies in a tragic accident to the point where he can't get all her pieces back. And his only goal is to put her back together. 
So he starts murdering sex workers. Collecting the pieces around the kingdom, except it's not like the jewel shards. It's literal body parts. It's it's the body parts of vulnerable sex workers that he murders and then carves up and then sews together. Right. This is already better than the movie uh, American Psycho. (laughs) Already better. Um. And then, and then, do do you care if I spoil it? Does anyone care if I spoil the plot of no. Frankenhooker from the nineteen nineties? Open for se- open season. I think it's from like the eighties or nineties. Puts her together, successfully brings her to life, and then you know she's both a monster and kind of a big hoe because <laughs> she's oh made from the body God. parts of sex workers. I want to suck your dick. This is so B movies B movie. Like oh, yeah. I cannot imagine a more. That sounds yeah. awesome. It's. It's oh awesome, but very bad. Oh, it's it has to be. Like, fucking super terrible, uh, but hilarious. I, I hate that I actually have a tangent for that. I really hate this. I love that you have a tangent uh, for I my tangent. I don't think tangent. we're going to get anywhere interesting in this no. episode, so let's just keep going. <laughs> we have to have our fun before we talk about what we've done, because what we've done ain't yeah. so fun. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, y'all know who Danzig is, right? Glenn Danzig? Uh, f- no. famous for being uh, one of the founding members of the Misfits. Oh yes, yeah. Okay. He he had a bunch of like shitty like butt rock like horror music that he that he did yeah. kind of solo. But mm. he he uh, I think sometime in the two thousands. Butt rock. St- yeah, the butt rock. Uh, it ain't metal. <laughs> he started doing comic books for a while that were like horror, but also kind of kind of horny in like the kind of way horror books. Well, they were comics, so they were like about as they're they're horror and erotic comics from a guy who thinks like skulls are like really cool to have around your house, and he's like old. Last couple of years, Wait, he real skulls probably not real ones because that'd be really cool. Okay. Yeah, that, that <laughs> I mean, well, it's very difficult to ethically source human remains. There was a TikTok going around of someone who had like like. At least a hundred human spines in their room. Yeah, that guy and they're like, this sucks. is just what I like to collect. And that the, guy the, sucks. The, yeah, the TikTok like uh, response thing was just like, you know, I, I don't know if this is legal or not, but like there's just things people shouldn't do. You just, it just, you just shouldn't do if it. If he's got release forms. It's I almost ju- impossible to ethically it. source human remains. It, it Genuinely, oh, most yeah. human remains that like people purchase are like the remains of like indigenous people who were oh. illegally dug up oh, yeah. or yeah all that shit is nasty people you of color who had no rights that. to their own bodies after death like that kind of shit yeah you gotta get release forms there's there's proper legal channels <laughs> what you gotta do is murder a family member yeah keep their bones fuck them you know it's, it's the realm of the sacred the idea that you could have someone you know someone's grandma's like spine in your house it's just too it's too fucking absurd. Even though obviously I'm not superstitious, I don't believe there's some real connection. Oh, there's there, but ghosts it's just in like that. there's don't. ghosts just in his spine room. Yeah, there's ghosts in that spine room. If anything, anyway, he's the tangent. Thing. Oh, so the tangent is uh, recently. Recently, Glenn Danzig funded, produced, wrote, and I think some. I think he. I don't think he acted in it, but I think he did the soundtrack to his own horny horror movie compilation oh God, that's amazing called verotica to sound like <gasps> i did know about this yeah. i never saw it i knew about this i've seen it twice it is so fun and it is as horrible amazing. as you expect it is 
the first okay i'm gonna somewhat spoil the first please do of, of three um vignettes but the first one is about a lady who has eye eyeballs for nipples oh god like a really bad Cronenberg. Yeah, and then she she's abducted by the the a man in the worst spider costume, and I and I, that's all I'm gonna say because I don't actually remember what happens. But I think they both live in the end. <laughs> Not a great time. And no one remember fucks. that Cronenberg movie where like she had the like penis needle in her armpit. Rabid. Yeah. 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 Th- this this that's is what that reminds um, me of for some reason. You will find YouTube it's disturbing as hell. You will find like YouTube fan films by amateurs that have better special effects than this movie. Mm, um, it's amazing. Do you remember when that guy from Slipknot made that really shitty movie with John Travolta? I, I was Slipknot. Oh, it was Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. Yeah. yeah, I always mix mm. them up because they're both like horror fanatics, and mm-hmm. they both are like genuinely terrible at creating horror. That movie's something. That movie sucked so yeah. bad. And I hate that that was like the original return of Devin Sawa to like films because I loved it. I had the biggest crush on Devin Sawa when I was a teenager. I was like in love with him. And like his return to movies was that piece of fucking shit with John Travolta playing like an obsessive fan who was also neurodivergent, probably. Yeah. Which is like soup. Yeah, he was supposed to be autistic. Yeah. Fucked up. In like a really like insincere way. This movie Yeah, it, it very much felt like what Tropic Thunder was mocking with Ben Stiller. Like that's it but uh, like unironic. Yeah, unironic. You know, like he thought I... this was like a like he was being an auteur about this shit. Auteur. <laughs> <laughs> I you know I'm not gonna make the joke. This Glenn Danzig Fine, one, it, uh, it, it it passes all of that because there are no actors or actresses. Glenn Danzig, it seems like he hired... So many eyeball nipples. Well, it seems like he hired all of his favorite porn stars, um, and, then they, ah. and then he hired extras for the men. And there's no, like, boning. It's not a porn. And there's almost no nudity, because I don't think he has the money to pay anyone for it, but... Um, mm. But it, you gotta watch it. Maybe, maybe you know what? Maybe when my pick comes around, I don't think so. I'll only suggest it three times. <laughs> you can choose Veronica, Veronica, yeah. or Frank it and Hunter. Yeah, it, <laughs> it does remind me though that that Lydia and I just watched um, VHS ninety four. Oh yeah, fourth, I forgot we watched that. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean like that was it like was two days ago. I think I think it's yeah, it's one of those things. I I it's fun B movie ish. Is this it's, an offshoot um, from the VHS? Yeah, it's the latest one. It's, it's just number the fourth four. installment. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah so it's, it's doing so the same thing. It's like, you know, it's it's like a series of short films, like the other ones yeah. are. So it, it's you know, I mean, it's not as good, but it has the same kind of vibe as like Creep Show. That's fair. Or um. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. 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 Same kind of because it's because it's just an anthology, right? It's an anthology movie, so it has the same and a Christmas horror story and all that shit. Um, but it's just objectively not as good but because i think mainly because the second vhs was so bad this one looks so good comparatively Mm. um so it got like a ton of like critical praise because it coming off the heels of fucking vhs viral i think is what the third one's called it was like man this is amazing I mean, yeah, now having sat with it for a bit, like, considering the studio it's from, considering the budget, you know, and all these constraints. They don't shit on Raven Banner Entertainment. No, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, it's like, they're not, these aren't people I like those guys, I know them. They don't have big name, they don't have big name actors or anything, right? With the constraints given, it's pretty, 
entertaining stuff. Like yeah, it's, it's good. The stories are cool. The special that's that's one thing you were saying about this how bad the special oh. effects were in yours, Des. But in this, the special effects were Amazing. shockingly good. Wow. Yeah, really, really good Damn. practical effects. But almost yeah. entirely practical effects. Um, and they were all like, practical effects is just always awesome. such a there's no excuse like, decent not practical to effects. Use it's always them. such a good experience. There, like there's no way practical effects are as expensive as shitty CG. Like there's no way. There was a rat mm, god. CG's pretty cheap these days. Like shitty CG's mm. like pretty comparably priced. Oh, um, whereas it's that. it's hard to find special effects makeup artists, and mm. the materials that special effects artists use can get pricey. God damn. So depending on what you're using, like what you're doing, if it's just big gnarly wounds, like you can usually get away with liquid latex and Kleenex and like a bunch of fake blood and yeah. you can kind of anything you fuck up, you can sort of cover up with gore and it sort of works. You get some but when you have like big. Yeah. But when you have some big, um, I prefer using third degree. It's way better um, than using <laughs> shitty oatmeal. I've used it a million times. You got to buy awesome. the good oatmeal. <laughs> third degree is fucking baller, but that shit's expensive. Um Anyway, but when you when you get to the point where you have like big prosthetics and like um, like you have puppets or full suits, it it gets expensive. That's fair. Um, but some of the best, honestly, some of the best special effects artists that are still working right now that I've seen that aren't like the classic names that we all know, like the Tom Savini's and shit. Some of the best ones I've seen are in Canada. They're in Toronto. Oh damn. Pride. Like the main special effects for um, that TV show Hannibal with Mads Mikkelsen. All those special effects were done no. by a studio really in Toronto. It was that, phenomenal. That show was um, phenomenal. Channel Zero, the first season of Channel Zero with the teeth monster, mm-hmm. the chatterer thing with all the teeth. That was done by the same effects studio. Wow. Um, the main special effects artist for uh, Orphan Black is Canadian from Toronto or just outside of. Um, Look so at like, this go. Amazing practical effects artists are in Toronto. Um, the Saw movies, almost every single one after the first one was done by a special effects team at Ontario. Nice. Toronto. Maybe yeah, uh, like we have amazing practical effects artists in Canada. Maybe there's still a career for me. Yeah. I can teach you practical effects if you don't know it. I know some. I know how to do a lot of it. I know some. <laughs> From my drag days, I loved, I loved goring the shit up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know how to do like the Chelsea smile thing and make it look like oh, your lips yeah. are carved open. I know how to make it look like things are protruding out of your arms, your hands, um, your fingers. That I, I never got all the time for Halloween. It's it's not that hard. It's annoying. I find it easier when you have a fake nail on if you're doing something coming out of the fingertip oh. um, because you can lean the item against the nail. And I use um, Q-tips for like bones, break up Q-tips so that you can create like if you're wrist is broken you have bones sticking out you break up q-tips to make it look like that it works really well damn as opposed to like casting like you can cast shit but like i don't got the time if i can if i can <laughs> fake it with like liquid latex and q-tips and um scar wax mm-hmm. it's way cheaper and faster because i'm I, lazy <laughs> i enjoyed the rat god that melted people's faces ratma a highlight big fan of rats ratma looked sick um ratma was like a dude in a suit but then also like this big ass fucking puppet head so it was like the top half was like all puppet um and it was rad looking it was super i think it's fun just going into like because i mean they were clearly in like toronto or not clearly in Toronto, but clearly in somewhere in canada we definitely figured out that and they were in this big sewer system and and like i've been near like those types of openings to sewers and it's just like i don't know that's a cool experience to see like a horror that feels like so close to home like that yeah. and i hadn't seen that 
done before. And it was it was definitely, especially some of the early bits where you see some of the like sewer people was kind of bad. Yeah. <laughs> but the acting was, was not amazing. Yeah. Um, but the special effects were really dope throughout. Ooh. Um I loved the uh the second story with the chick in the funeral home. Yeah, I thought it was a little long, but it was very cool. I know, but the top half of that dude's face, yeah. that looked Really amazing. good practical effects. I just pulled yeah. up that was rad looking. And, he, and it looks phenomenal. It's so good. So good. Most of the VH, VHS movies are like super weird and cool and like did something different. VHS 94 is like, it's good. It reminded me a lot of the analog horror that Joseph and I watched on YouTube. It gave like yes, a very similar very vibe to so. that, especially because it's like set in 94 and they're using like newscasts and weather reports and stuff to splice in between like the creepy stories so if you like analog horror it's like very much a vibe but like the first one is it genuinely disturbed me when i watched it for the first time i was like this is unsettling it's it's a very good weird it feels like you're watching something that's like less than legal but it doesn't it's, it's it's not like a snuff film or like weird freaky porn it just feels like something like super taboo and like not meant for public consumption but not in like a torture porn gross score way you know what I mean? does that make sense it's just yeah. like this weird unsettling vibe i get it yeah like <laughs> like just, you shouldn't be seeing this yeah. yeah it feels like illicit some way i actually do have a fun fact today something i learned i'm now scared that you've already said this later and you're just gonna scream at me but that bo burnham's inside Oh. Uh, was filmed. <gasps> I did know this. I don't think I said it on the podcast, though. I know what you're yeah, going to say. Say it. Was filmed. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's filmed with some of the set or some of the thing they used Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street Nightmare House. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. It's the Nightmare on Elm Street House. The whole thing was filmed right, in the Nightmare on Elm Street I guess it's like they're house. like the farmhouse. It's like not their, not one of the big state houses. It's like one of the like sheds or guest houses or something. Yeah, there's a guest house. So like Nancy's house. There's a guest house in Nancy's house, right. but it was filmed in Nancy's house. The main girl's char- the main character. Really? Um, but most of it was filmed in the guest house. Uh, and it's because Bo Burnham's partner um, bought the Nightmare on Elm Street house and they were living in it. Jesus. Oh, so it, so it wasn't like um, it wasn't just some kind of witty commentary. It. it was like, also, we just own this. <laughs> well, she owned it. I, I, I think he was just like they were living together during the pandemic, during quarantine. Mm. Um but she she's selling it right now. Oh, it is currently for sale, and I think it's for sale for some like obscene amount of money, like fucking three million dollars or something. The house famous for Nightmare on Elm Street one and also Bo Burnham's Inside. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's probably it's probably maybe not more famous now, but it's like that's a big selling point. Mm-hmm. No, it is. Yeah, no, and no. it's like it's a pretty recognizable house. Like when you see it from the yeah. exterior, if you've seen Nightmare, like you recognize yeah. the house immediately. It's a cute little neighborhood too. Oh, I bet. Joseph, are you gonna say what I what I was thinking? What were you thinking? What's everyone been watching? Yeah, well well I was gonna say something like we should actually like let's We should actually so, every, talk we should about should at least Vinia? all have one thing we actually oh, yeah. end up talking about. Yeah, I've got because we probably we talked oh, about VHS. No, I know. That's and fair. we um because uh, I was gonna say it was like we actually haven't talked in we haven't done a podcast recording in like a month. Mm-hmm. And so we all have probably a bunch of stuff. I know, I was too busy and important. That's true, that's true. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a bunch of true. Yeah, mo- mostly Lydia's fault. Um, <laughs> it's mostly my fault. Yeah, that's valid. Uh, I have been binging shit, is what, I'll, is what I'm going to say. Oh Whoa, my God, I love uh, it. Which is right. new, because uh, 
So I'm in school right now, and I'm having a hard time. What am I doing? What am I doing? You're waving a book at it. Your Bible thumping. I know. I'm just like, <laughs> I started like just fidgeting, and then I'm like, I can see that this is a big thing on camera. Like, I need to. That's okay. The viewers stop. can't see, but he's waving a Bible. I know. Oh my god. I, I, I'm having a hard time picking Joseph up. Joseph has converted. <laughs> it's true. I never left. Um, He's a Mormon now. So, so I've been binging. I've been having a hard time starting up any video games, which is usually my go-to. So instead of been mm. watching, and I've watched a whole list of things. Uh, I will list them briefly, okay. but I'll focus on one or two. Uh, so I watched They Live. I watched The Dirties. Fun. I watched Lamb. Fun. I watched two seasons of Nirvana, The Band, The Show. Which everyone should watch. Yes. And I watched Dune Part 1, not once, not twice, but three times. Oh God. <laughs> uh, and man. That is aggressive. I, 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 You know what? I just love it. I love it. Uh, I'm not going to like say it's like a great movie. I'm not going to say it's perfect. But what I'm, what I'm going to say is that as a fan of the books, as a fan of laughing at the... A man of culture. Uh, the David Lynch adaptation the whole time i was watching this movie deep into uh, a, a rip of bong i kept saying to myself how did they not fuck this up mm. and that's that's what all i'm gonna say about quality is that I, they just managed to not fuck it up it's really good i don't know if you guys yeah. care at all about uh dune stuff well I, I did i did get to see it and i do care a lot about dune yeah but i wondered so yeah so lydia what did you are you planning to see it have you seen it i don't intend to i've not anything. seen it yeah, don't spoil it because I, I am planning to watch it. Okay. I'll probably watch it tomorrow night. Whoa. Okay. Much to Villeneuve's despise, <laughs> I will not be seeing it in theaters. Fuck him. He can mm. suck a dick. I will be watching it on my fucking TV because people are disgusting. Theaters, so. That's what I did too. I don't I, care. I'm not going to a fucking theater. No, people are um, fucking gross. I already mm-hmm. had to fly on an airplane. I'm not doing a movie theater on top of that in a two-week span. Eat shit. Watching it on my TV. Um, <laughs> but I, I do plan to watch it. I haven't read Dune. Um, I have seen the Lynch ver- version. Nice. I listen to a lot of movie podcasts. Go figure. Mm. As I star in one. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the ones that I listen to is one that's behind a paywall actually and i talk about it all the time on this fucking podcast but if you like movies and you like and you're interested in the entertainment industry i will never not recommend we'll see you in hell it is worth paying the patreon fee to listen to this podcast it's fucking incredible Hmm. and they're hysterical and they're both in the entertainment industry but they saw it absolutely like even to somebody who is not who is just like hating on villeneuve left right and center and has not read the book dune Saying that you prefer the Lynch version is like a fucking just so out of pocket take. That oh. is a wild thing <laughs> That's to say. That's what they said? They said that Villeneuve's Dune was technically well executed. It told the story exceedingly well. It kept in all of the pertinent details. Hmm. It was a film and it was good, but it was not fun to watch and it lacked genuine entertainment value. Especially to people who have not read the book. Yeah. Um, And then they harped on it for having the same, like, sepia-toned color palette through the entire (laughs) fucking movie. And there's just, like, no other color but gray or brown, which I think, honestly, is valid. Like, if it's not visually interesting to look at, it can be, like, a little bit stagnant at times if you're not interested in the source material. Overall, it didn't deter me from wanting to watch it. Like, they very much praised it. They just said, like, 
If you're looking for a movie to be entertained by and you haven't read the book Dune, you very likely won't enjoy it. It might be, uh, unfortunately, it might be a bit dry. What I what I appreciated is that I watched it with my my spouse, one of the three watches, and uh, they have not watched. They, they, they don't know anything about Dune. They don't care about Dune. They couldn't be less tapped into it. And with like a very brief primer on like one or two subjects, uh, they got into it and uh, completely like completely dry. They went in and they just like, well, good movie, like really liked it, uh, despite how dense and unapproachable some of the material might seem and i think that's a huge credit to to villeneuve um because this is like i said this is a movie that could have been so fucking bad it could have it could have been it it definitely from from everything i'm hearing from fans of dune like the the book series it very much feels like somebody who loved the books created an adaptation that was like very faithful and like endearing to fans of it and and still like a very serious and artistic adventure and i mean i get it i feel very similarly about all of the lord of the rings movies oh yeah despite my passionate hatred for the hobbit adaptations the lord of the rings movies. movies are very much a love letter to the books and is as perfect an adaptation as i think you can really ask for in film Will I probably find it more entertaining than Dune? Yeah, but I'm not a fan of the Dune books. And this feels like a movie made for art house film fans who also love Dune. I, I think you might find a lot to love in it. I'm not going to... I mean, as somebody who loves film, I very yeah. likely will. I just mean it. Um, but I also that. find Villeneuve a pretentious bastard and <laughs> I love to shit on him. And that's, I refuse to change. This is this is to change. This is probably him at his most reserved is what I'm going to say. Like... It's oh, okay. it's really interesting to watch because it as a as a fan of Dune, it didn't feel like it was pandering to me. It kept in the parts that I think are important about Dune, like mm. the litany against fear. And it's in, I'm pretty sure it's there in its entirety, at least once in the movie, which Lynch snipped out. It's not out. quite, but it's it, it, a lot of it. Yeah, it's like more than just the first stanza. Yeah, and then even then, like it doesn't do a lot of like the art house stuff either. Like it it feels. Um, both this is actually maybe the, yeah, the most it's, it's a weird it's a weirdly balanced movie that it's really epic in scope really it has a very clear like style and things but it doesn't reach green knight levels of like surreal ev- like it isn't metaphorical as it's like main basis there are like visions and stuff but, but for the most the part there's a very through line plot it's grounded that, like yeah. yeah if you're like it, it's it's kind of like a Game of Thrones type plot where it's like it can be complicated, but, you know, a dedicated viewer can follow it. And it isn't like there isn't cerebral metaphors or visual like truths or whatever that are the main things. There are those things, but they're like you don't need them to and, get what's and going they're also on. like and they're also more or less just brought from the source material. So it doesn't feel like it's like yeah. inserted. That's kind of that kind of brings me to like almost the only criticism I have thus far um, is that this feels like. A, a good star wars movie if it was mature mm. and like that's that's both like that is that is a criticism don't get me wrong i'm not a star wars guy and it does feel like it's a movie that needs to go to theater needs to eat popcorn and needs to appeal to jeb who you know works at the gas station or and doesn't care about dune and wants to see space fights it it, it hits that mark without mm-hmm. ever beating you over the head with just that's, like you're not artsy oddly, that's how i've um that's how I've been feeling about the new Apple TV, Apple TV Plus show Foundation. The like mm. Asimov 
adaptation. I did, of Jared I did start after you gave like uh, me too. Yeah, it's it's not it's not bad. Like it's it's a it's a solid really show. Like um, but it, it very much does feel like Star Wars for a mature audience. You know, you've got mm. like evil empire has to fall, pseudo rebels, but it's like science and mathematicians yeah. and like the nerds are starting the uprising. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's funny because the yeah. book, it's it's crazy to compare the book to the TV show. The TV shows manages to it's it's true to the book, but it's the book is so much people doing math and and time skipping <laughs> everywhere and saying like the fucking place is going to fall whereas here they've managed to somehow find human drama between actual characters there is zero i'm i am being <laughs> literal here zero actual characters in the original foundation yep. books yeah i i, um, I it is it's just a series of conceptual events that is discussed by different characters to each other I, I'll be the detractor and say I didn't love what I watched thus far, mm. being being somewhat fresh off the foundation books. But I mean, part of it is definitely because I'm thirsting after Lee Pace. So like, judge that so as you will. Hot. He's Always. so hot. Always in everything, and the man truly sounds like he he should have been born with that voice and that accent. And mm. I'm pretty sure he's from like fucking Oklahoma. <laughs> I don't even know, but I just like hot. He's great. So hot. Space villains. Space hot. Like, yeah. Or or fantasy villain like villains, elf yeah, yeah, villain yeah. hottie. Yeah, I, actually, Oof. no. I'll be. I'll, I'll take a thing on here. I actually don't like him as that as that elf as king guy. I actually, he doesn't. Yeah, I like Thranduil. him darker. Like, or as in, like, I like him darker haired. Like a more. Oh yeah, I don't love the blonde, like but he's still hot. It's not even the and yeah, and it's like, but I like him a little more violent, a little more like aggressive. Brows. As yeah, as the um, elf king, he just he felt. Prissy. Yeah, yeah, the grace doesn't come. It's all priss. Whereas um, yeah, there's I'm forgetting in the original Lord of the Rings movies, there's like an elf leader of the guard that that um yeah. Orlando Bloom talks to a bunch. I found him a more like. Uh, no, no, no. Who you know who I'm thinking of? Um, there was the elf, that guy, but I, he was just fine. The elf, is he like king or like he's like the mayor of a town or whatever where they where they have the fellowship. Oh, Elrond. Uh, it's Elrond. Elrond yeah, yeah. Elrond and, like, Hubbard. He's like the. I'm, yeah, I guess he's he's Mister Smith and uh, um, yeah, in Agent the Matrix. Yeah. What's his fucking actor and name? He's, he's also in greatest, Priscilla, like, Queen of the Desert. Just horrible elf king like status. What's up? What's his name again? Uh, Hugo Weaving? Um, Weaving. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's Hugo Weaving. Yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of Asimov translates because he was always so focused about the science. Yeah. And it, Foundation he does not do characters. Yeah, it's just a totally different vibe. Yeah, and Foundation is like if you, the the novelization the novels were not the novelization of the show. Yeah. <laughs> the novels were uh, so focused on setting and time and place yeah. and the scale of it was big because of that the setting was a character but the, but the people within it were not but i don't think it's a bad show it's just i don't think it if they had named it anything else i'd be like great <laughs> no i i yeah i i know i know exactly where you're coming from but i actually if i were given the task to make the, a, a real tv show that people would enjoy out of the original foundation books i'm like this is very up to uh, like i actually think in see one of the big problems with the books obviously as from a modern day honest it's not just the having no characters but it's also hilariously non-diverse for having 40 trillion citizens you know a bajillion years in the future and it's like and every character you follow is a white man every 
every main character is, is a 40 year old white man and every uh like the the villain's a 40 year old white man that it's just like my god like you could have there's literally not a single woman it's to be, the future. i mean maybe one maybe one woman to be found in the entirety of, if anything like, let's be honest if anything in the future men are not the ones to survive they're not going to figure out how so to breed the show did a women. phenomenal job yeah of bringing that sort of i think one of the great things i don't like star wars like at all really but one of the things as a visual spectacle star wars has been great at like the diversity of the galaxy is so strong yeah. in it like there's so many crazy looking species and they're you know rough and tumble with each other like they're just so exotic to one another that is just like you don't they don't even pretend to explain how they communicate or like what they're like doing no there's one of everyone just like there's every just bar. craziness going on yeah and foundation they're all human so it doesn't have that much but there is a diversity of like different peoples different religions different characters like uh and different skin tones that is like and different right languages away. yeah that, that's like all in there and um yeah weirdly both foundation and dune I remember when I was reading those when I was younger, where I was like, I was very anti-religion. And now I really see the religious themes of both. And they're like super important. Yeah. Dune, and I'm like, I'm much more receptive. That's actually something not to circle all the way back. But Dune, the new one really focuses on the fact that it's a colonizer story. And and not and not in the way that David Lynch did, where it's just like, oh, yeah, like they're coming to save the desert. It's like, no, no, there's no mixing themes here. Like it opens up with like a Fremen telling the story of their colonization. And then you're seeing it as people are coming to recolonize it. And it's like, they're not, yeah, it's, it's. One of the characters literally says like, it's like, who will be our new oppressors now that these oppressors have left? And then it cuts directly to Paul. And it's like, I mean, (laughs) I don't know how much more of a thing, but the book, the original first book, not the second and third, but the original first book, this is one of my weirdest, the weirdest things about Dune to me is that like, Yes, there's a lot of hints by the end of the first book that things are going to change. things, But in a way, it is basically a hero's journey, white savior complex. He is in with the, I mean, I don't turn off any spoilers at all, but it's like he's in with the Fremen in some way and they like him. Yeah. And it's like, okay. (laughs) It's, it's funny because, because it's true. And I think, I think that's why Dune needs to be seen as more than just the first book because, yeah. um, but it's it's so common to just read the first. Yeah, book. and that and that's the thing is like Paul's journey is so interesting because it is the typical hero's journey, but the subversion of it is in it's in the sauce, right? The whole thing about him is that as he assumes this higher role and becomes the hero, like his character, the human being Paul, flattens. So it's all it it actually inverts at some point, and he just actually becomes the role to the point where his humanity is basically gone. Um, and that theme continues in some of the later books, but yeah, like they're already so clearly making allusions to that. You can tell Villeneuve wants to do the whole cycle and I, I, I hope he does. (laughs) I also, yeah, I also think they did a really good job of making the sci-fi elements feel really cool. Yeah. The shields actually feel badass. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. What I love is there's almost no direct exposition. There is, but very little direct exposition in the movie so it's like the shields how they work and so it it and it and frank herbert the writer of the novel knew like had this world building very carefully in mind like so one thing you know in the books like only if you, like you read them for a while and you you find out about it like, one of the big sci-fi concepts that he has is that ai and com- actually no computers in general bad had to be stopped yeah um they were a huge problem so there's no computers 
So there's all sorts of, like imagine today's society, how would we develop technology to go in the future without computers? Like computers is everything. Yeah, all the tech is junky. And so they are in a weird kind of space with technology because of that. And then, but so then one of them is that they also found this technology or figured out this technology where they can have this like force field around their body that high speed projectiles are just completely stopped by it. And so guns are just completely worthless, basically, in the world. Mm -hmm. There are some kinds of exceptions that are like very crazy workarounds, but basically guns are stopped. And that makes it, you get to have the fun sci fantasy concept of now it, so then everyone is fucking sword and it doesn't focus on because that's the main way to fight my favorite part is it doesn't try to explain any of it away there's one line in the movie where it says the slow blade gets through the shield and it's like there you go and then that's the exposition yeah and and the whole movie everyone's just fighting with swords and they all have the same swords and same body shields and it doesn't ever say like oh well you see you got to activate it before you know this like there's no sci-fi jargon like all the spaceships are junky and rusty and there's buttons the weird thing to me is they develop these shields, right? No gun can get through them. So they're just like, no more advancing guns. We're just not going to do that. We're going to do swords because swords can get through the shield. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Quick fix. I get that. Why did nobody think maybe we should make a shield for the swords? <laughs> like, why the, are we still using yeah. the force field against the guns so, when no one fucking has gotta, one? Gotta the sword, it does work on swords, too, actually. Like, if someone just stabbed you with a sword, it does work. The idea is that the, the shield allows you, if you move extremely slowly, to move through it. And so the sword fighting looks pretty awesome because it's like the, a really good sword fighter in this world has to, like, really quickly get to a weak point and then have to slow down crazy slow and then just, like, very, like, slowly stab you. Yeah, and it doesn't... Could and you it's, imagine it's very you're in the middle of a fight and it's just, like... <laughs> so creeping. Like, just, really, just really intense. Like, no one can there hear is, me. Really yeah. aggressive eye contact. Like, just yeah. take it. I mean, come get this. It's kind, of, it's kind of how it is. Yeah. And I don't know. There's just really cool just moments. Just the like, tip. It's okay. Um, well, okay. Actually, here's okay. I, this is the thing I want to talk about, but it's like one of my no, big baby. We don't need to use protection. No, no. Oh keep God. your shield off. We'll just go real slow. <laughs> I loved. It doesn't feel as good. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> That's how I felt about. I loved uh, in my interpretation of the books, and Jess. So I wonder how you felt about the. This is about the voice. Oh yeah. So in in this in this world, there are people who train for a bunch of different powers, and one of them is called the voice. I always viewed the voice as, uh, a, like a psychosuggestive training, because a lot of the trainings they do are kind of like you know the fears the mind killer stuff. In a way, it's like emotional control, is like the idea or like controlling your own fear it's not magic it's just an internal training there's definitely like magic to it but it's not like it's not like the force where it's just like oh it's like anomalous and unknowable it's like no it's like intense personal yeah i liked it being in that semi-mystical space and his visions too are kind of in like the space of like where's you know is that just hallucinogens and is it unlocking sort of potential his brain who knows right but it's like but then the voice it's like in the books i like to read it as that when someone uses the voice, it's like a very psychosuggestive. Like they, th- this is how they say it. It's like if you get the exact right tone, it connects to like a suggestive part in and the you other can just person's make them mind. Do a thing. But in the movie, and I get why they did this, but in the movie, they're just like, it's fucking crazy. Like 
ancestor magic that just like channels through them and it's like i mean okay i do i do like uh and 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 this is coming like somewhat fresh off dune um i read it last year i really actually do like the interpretation of it being like like because because here's the thing after a couple rewatches every time you hear the voice it's multiple characters voices overlaid so yeah, it's like it's like the like grandma ancestors yeah. coming. So in. like you hear like the ancestral voices. You hear like when women do it, you hear men's voices come out. When men do it, women's voices come out too, and they're all just layered. I really like it. I think I think unfortunately, I mean, it sounds cool. Yeah, I think I like the way they did it. It's probably not how I imagined it, but well, I just like the idea that someone is like lulled. Like it's like vampiric. Su- I like the hypnotic. idea of it being like vampiric suggestion. Yeah, yeah, like it's like someone hears you mm-hmm. and then you're like. It's not that it's magic. It's that you're just compelled by what they're saying. You're like strangely like they've hit the right nerve to get you to do the thing. But here it's literally like you the person says it and immediately that person is just like I am when they do. They Actually, I thought this was really coolly done. But they're the person that like, goes into a tr- like a full trance like thing. They don't remember what they just did. So in the movie, they do it really cool where they just cut. Yeah, they're just like the person just wakes up and it's like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, and they know what's happened to them, like, too, which is complete. cool. So I, it is cool. It's just not the way it's, I like it's, it. It's interpreted well. That's that's the thing you have, yeah. I have to say about most of it is like it's interpreted really well. Yeah. And that's the most you could hope for with something that's like nearly unadaptable. You know? I don't know why people say that. I think it's I just, just as adaptable as anything else. I, th- I think it's a facet of like people won't pay to make it. People won't pay to watch it. It's too big and heady. And like the books oh, have I see that, that kind the of books have that, and the movie dodges a lot of that bullshit. Mm. I remember in the books, there's a ton of just like political machinations behind the scenes, where oh, just yeah. like random people you do not know, like just have crazy titles from the Empire, are just talking in back rooms for so long. And in here, they just dodge that completely. They're like the main characters you know just reference the fact yep. that they've had backroom deals, it's organic. and they're just like, that's it. Like they're just not gonna t- have. These like crazy long drawn out exposition discussions, and they and they managed to also not go into like the original Dune was highly political, and mo- much of it was commentary mm-hmm. on like wars for oil in the Middle East, and yeah. you could which I still think they got the point across. I in think this they one. did, uh, but they did it without referencing like Emperor Shaddam. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they managed to dodge around the, the the hammy stuff and the overt stuff, and just still communicate much of it. So. I don't mean to linger so long on this one, but I really think it begs a watch, uh, especially now that we're getting part two. Got greenlit the day after it released, so that's all I was looking forward to this year. Yeah, no. Oh my god, if, if it wasn't greenlit, that would be insane and such such a tragedy. I yeah. truly think, I truly believe that it was already like in the back. Everyone knew it was going to be made, but they like held off on announcing it to mm. try and drum up support. Like additional support. I think they gaslit everyone just thinking it was gonna be one movie. Like I'm pretty I'm just gonna say straight up that is what they did. They in the movie title screen it says Dune Part One. But the trailers in, don't. All if before, yeah, but any trailer before, any imagery before, it never said yeah. that. But there were still announcements ahead of the film that it was gonna be at minimum two parts. Like even if it wasn't in the yeah. trailer. Every article, every mm. interview, everything was talking about how it was going to be two parts. Oh, really? I did not get how, that impression. Like, 
how like, oh, we might not get two parts if it doesn't do well in theaters because it's mm-hmm. like a theatrical release. Um, I truly think they like were manipulating people to go see it opening weekend or go see it in theaters as fast as possible so they can make more money. Yeah. I think they the intention mm-hmm. was there to always make the second film unless it truly, truly fucking bombed, which was never going to happen. You never know with movie folks, right? They're all ghouls. So I wouldn't be mm. too surprised. But it, it begs a watch. That's what I'll say is like, if this is the Marvel or like Star Wars equivalent for the year, this this is a high, high bar, I think. And I, th- I think it really does I, yeah. have the curb appeal too. I was just super happy with it. I'm I like, I, you know, it's funny because I, I, Dune is not one of my favorite stories. I have all sorts of problems with it. But my my big takeaway is seeing it all condensed, like the full story condensed in this movie actually helped me appreciate it more. It's not that there was any one new piece of information. It's just seeing everything so quick in succession. You're not bogged down by like just characters in back rooms talking about the like the, these really esoteric politics of this like insanely large galactic empire yeah. it's lean in a way that like even some marvel movies aren't like i'm like this is shorter than some of the later ones in the avengers cycle and it's well so it's still two and a half hours i'm not gonna it, i'm it's still long but i'm just saying it's it's focused on the story it's trying to tell and it is taking 500 pages of a book and condensing it down into a mm-hmm. movie you know but yeah lydia you haven't gotten to we got through <laughs> foundation we got through dune no. i mean technically i brought up what uh, Technically, I brought up Foundation. That's true. Thank you very much. Oh, did you? Oh, I thought it was death. Uh, we got through Verotica. No, it was me. Uh, I did not bring that up. That's true. I did I'm bring sorry. up Frankenhooker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the queen of tangenting on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, honestly, the, this last week was kind of a wash for me because I was in Vegas for a conference. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really do a lot of watching uh, except for marathons of... Law and Order SVU and Chicago PD in my hotel room at like midnight, <laughs> uh, which I don't want to talk about. But <laughs> I did watch the first episode of a new show on uh, Showtime, I think, called Yellow Jackets. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. It's only episode one, so like I'm not going to dig in too deep to it, but it is a psychological horror. So I am going to immediately start talking about it Pulling because I up. love horror. Oh yeah, it's cool. It's it's a pretty rad cast too. It's got a it's got a now and then vibe. If you ever watched that movie Now and Then with uh, a very young Christina Ricci, Now and Then does this thing where it's like you see them as kids and then you see them again as adults. It does the same thing. Stephen King's It. Um, so it's sort of like two stories mm-hmm. happening like concurrently, which I love. I find that interesting. But it's about this girls varsity soccer team that's on their way to in like the 90s. I think that's on their way to nationals and their plane crashes in the wilderness. And you don't totally know what happened, but you know that there was some kind of like horrific thing that happened while they were out trapped in the wilderness until they were rescued and not everyone was rescued. So you see them as adults dealing with whatever the trauma was and reporters and people asking them questions, trying to get information about what happened. And then you see them as kids and the lead up. And presumably at some point you see them in the wilderness and what actually happened. But even just episode one, phenomenally well acted. First of all, it's got some amazing actors in it. 
But the tension is so very, very high in that first episode to, like, the lead up for everything that's happening. And you see flashes of them in the wilderness. And there's, like, some kind of people in very disturbing sort of, like, costumes with them in the wilderness. There's something incredibly unsettling just in the one episode. And you don't know what's happening yet. And I found it very interesting. And I think psychological horror is one of those things that, like, is dismissed often. As a subgenre of horror, there are many, many people who don't think it qualifies as horror if it's not in some way supernatural or a slasher. Um, Like, if it doesn't have one of those two elements, it's not considered horror. And this very much doesn't have either of them. It is sort of like the more intense, more frightening version of a psychological thriller, uh, which I'm a huge fan of. And I think they, in one episode, have managed to do it very, very well with a cast that's almost entirely women. Mm. Very young women and then, you know, 30 to 40 range women. And that's impressive. Your initial description, my first thought was the movie Alive about the um, the uh, soccer team that crashes in like the Himalayas and has to eat each other. Um, but how? Yeah, and I think that's kind of what they're going for. Yeah, because I was going to say you know, the way but you... Not, not a drama. Yeah, the way you framed it, like the idea of them like being interviewed when they come back but them having to kind of live with some of the secrets of what happened out there. I'm like that in itself sold me. And the fact that they also turn it into, or at least they intend to turn that into a horror instead of just like a, we ate our friends, but feel a drama, good, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I want to yeah, see it's somewhere between like an alive and like, uh, an, I don't know, a more intense, modernized Lord of the Flies vibe mm. is what I got from episode one. Okay. But without pretentious, rich little boys. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's it's interesting. And, like, the tensions that they create between these characters immediately before you even get to the wilderness with them is very impressive. Like, it feels uncomfortable. It really feels like it's leading up to somewhere interesting and unsettling I, I i looked at the act uh list of uh, actors in it and i didn't i didn't recognize too many faces but i don't also watch a lot of like modern stuff uh, at least i haven't mm. been up to date well i mean christina ricci's in it christina ricci and i also saw juliette uh lewis yeah juliette lewis is in it um uh there's a sitcom actress oddly enough or an actress at least i've seen in sitcoms is it the lady from bing bong theory i don't know what that is the big big bang theory big bang. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, okay, for the best. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure she was in um, Two and a Half Men or something. Uh, yeah, I saw a lot of faces I didn't recognize. And I really appreciate that about like a horror is like, give me people I can't see in other roles. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you give me um, huge Jackman uh, and <laughs> put him in like a like a pretty low rent horror thing or like psychological thriller, I'm just going to see. You know, I'm just going to see like The Showman. I'm just going to see uh, Wolverine. Yeah. I want to see I want to see horror yeah. with people who don't take me out of it. A couple of the younger, like the young girls in it, I recognize like um, the the one chick, Samantha Hanratty, is from Shameless. I haven't seen that one either. So like there, there's some people. I think Steve Steven Kruger. I know from he was <laughs> he was in the originals. That's where I know him from. So like there's there's definitely people in it that oh, are yeah, like the originals. Oh my god. Yeah. I shut up. I love the originals. I never watched so it, bad. but my god. Oh my god. It's so bad, but it's so good. 
Everyone in it is so hot. They're just all like, <laughs> that's all the show is. It's like melodrama and hotness. And, and it's fine. I love it. It's trash, but it's hot trash. But yeah, I mean, so far, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be great or not. I hope it is because I don't think uh, you see a lot of horror in this style in a television show. I think it's mm. pretty rare that you get like a good horror television show in general. Mm. And it's, I, I don't know. I have good feelings about it. The first episode is really strong. Damn. Yeah, I'm going to have to add that to my list, which is getting shorter. But it's unfortunately a weekly release show. So I feel like that might turn a lot of people off. Oh, wait. So wait until the whole thing comes out. I don't think it's long. I think it's only like 10 or 11 episodes for the whole season. I, I kind of think, yeah, we're in the... It's, it's funny because it's actually a bunch of my list are like this, but like we're kind of in the era of like the horror or horror adjacent TV show because like I, I I don't have time to get to them for this episode, but like I watched the later seasons of You uh, and I watched Midnight Mass. I mean, oh, yeah. Sure. Midnight Mass is great. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, like I guess You is a horror, but like, come on. It's a melodrama at best. Mm-hmm. Like, let's be honest. And, like, they've spent so much time in season three just, like, being Joe apologists. I'm fucking over it. It's like somehow he's become, like, the sexy protagonist. And you want did you and finish you season to hate three? love. Yes, I did. Okay. I was supposed to say, I'm like, I feel like he's just awful by the end of season three. I'm just like, like he's not he's so great, awful. but like love is painted as this like psycho bitch. And he's like, just uh, trying to create a good life for his son. It's like, ugh, Christ. Is that how it's painted? I didn't take it that way at all. I think by the very end, really it's like, she people. must die. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just over well, it. Cause he's wrong. Cause he's like, he's that's the it part never, of the show. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's but absolutely some, crazy. Like, weird redemption of him giving his son to like better people to raise because he's like self-aware enough to like know that his son deserves a good stable family to me i just thought wow that's a convenient plot device to let you get to a fresh new season (laughs) more than i want that show to end so goddamn bad i Oh, fuck. Um, I hate that show now. Um, But no, I mean, I agree that horror shows are happening, but the horror has a tendency to take a backseat to whatever else they're doing. And I think that's true in you, which I would classify more as like a thriller than a horror, not to be like that nitpicky asshole. But even the thrills take a backseat to the like weird family drama and like psychosexual bullshit they're doing. Yeah, no, that's like Midnight Mass. Why Manor? Midnight Mass. I love Mike Flanagan. I adore Mike Flanagan. I'll watch anything he does. And I do think he can do horror. But I I don't totally feel strongly that Midnight Mass is a true horror. I think it's it's more of like a religious trauma dramatic show. Did we cover this last And the horror kind of takes a backseat. Did we cover Midnight Mass? We've talked about Midnight Mass before. But I just finished it for the first time. So I hadn't... I hadn't... uh, how did you feel about the flip from episode four to five when like the 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 actual like horror elements started to like really just take over i i think it's like i knew because everyone had told me that that was gonna happen so i was already like on the lookout right from the beginning Mm -hmm. but my my take i don't want to say that much about the show but it's like my take is just that compared to other like especially hill house which is still my favorite flanagan is hill house i loved the ambiguity as metaphor being a constant in it yeah. mm-hmm. whereas i don't know what's trying to be said in midnight mass like i get that there i get the themes or like some of them at least but the 
maybe I just like things more as metaphors. The fact that so much of it is absolutely just real, like bothers yeah. me. Yeah. And I just don't like that. And it's like, is that fair? I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was expecting something else. I think. Um, but I'm just like, I don't know. I, I don't. But I also just think that they missed the mark on like actually landing certain themes like super well by the end. I don't want to talk too much shit because I, I think that they, they, they did a lot right for how short it was. But I, I, maybe you guys feel the same, but I feel like they stopped knowing what to do with half the actors come like the, the mm. turn, right? Because like Monsignor, he is mm. like commanding. Every every scene he's in is is absolutely amazing. And then I love Hamish Linklater. He's so good. Oh my god, he's and he's so convincing. He makes me want to believe. But I know. But uh, there comes a point in the show where they actually just kind of toss him to the side, and it's and it's done in such a way where the rest of the show kind of like swells up to to kind of make up for the fact that like the core of it has sunk but every time they show him you're just like i want him back do more him see and i do agree he's the most charismatic character in the show he is however not the main character he is absolutely the plot device for your main protagonist and antagonist bev is your antagonist and unfortunately your main character is Kate Siegel, yeah. and she was Ugh. fucking terrible. She was not great. She, I she, literally she sucked. Like, don't remember her like throughout she the whole. She was series, so boring. Like, yeah, she was so boring. Um, the whole her time. like pseudo boyfriend was boring. Isn't the guy really the main character? I don't know. For, for like, three episodes, and he dies at like episode five. <laughs> That's true. So then, yeah, you have like. Um, you, you have Kate yeah. Siegel. <laughs> that's how, that's how bad I think of her. I'm like, I guess that's she's, true. She's a shit character. She was. Avoided. She sucked. Yeah. He, she sucked. She was boring. He, she was super boring. She wasn't great either. I think but. okay, but I definitely think he was more the main character for a few of the episodes earlier. Like I I agree, but I think ultimately, on. like the journey is like it's about the town, but it's centered around her. Yeah, she does. She can't carry it. No, you're right. Obviously. But like, okay, so I I agree. Um, I and yet I'm a hundred percent a Mike Flanagan apologist because I fucking love him, and I super recognize that this is not a perfect example of anything he's done. He's done much better things. Hill House is objectively better. Bly Manor isn't as good as Hill House, but it's better than Midnight Mass. A bunch of the movies that he's made have been better. Doctor Sleep was better, but in a lot of ways, I still love Midnight Mass. Oh yeah, I mean I totally understand why people hate the monologues it's a monologue every 15 seconds it's Mm. grating if you're not used to it it very much feels like it's meant to be some kind of like weird epic poem or Mm. play or something i still loved it i thought it was beautifully written i thought every monologue was stunningly written i do think that they failed to integrate characters as much as they should have the sheriff would have been a really interesting juxtaposition to the religious fanaticism which is like very clearly the theme of the show is religious trauma and fanaticism. And the sheriff is an interesting character to play against that because he's sort of like, he's a sort of strict Muslim, but he's like very modernized and like very open-minded. And there was a lot of interesting conversation that could have had there that they just like didn't, especially when his son becomes the catalyst at one point for this religious fanaticism. And they just like, didn't explore that in a way that was meaningful or interesting. Yeah. All of that being said, I have 100% excused it completely with like my own mental workaround and gymnastics because um, have you ever seen, I talked about this with Joseph, but have you ever seen the movie Hush? 
actually that is one I put on uh, not even like two nights ago. Ah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Hush is a Mike Flanagan movie. It stars Kate Siegel, uh, where she plays a deaf woman and an author out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. It's a home invasion movie. It's very simple. And and truly, when, my, when Mike Flanagan isn't adapting somebody else's work, I do think he he is lackluster. I think he struggles to find his own voice mm-hmm. when it's not an adaptation of like a stronger piece of source material. That's what he's good at adapting Stephen King, adapting old, like, sort of Victorian gothic horrors he's phenomenal at. His own unique original shit is kind of meh. Um, And even Hush, which I love, I have a soft spot for, is, like, not that good. It's a very simple premise. But the thing that I think is interesting about Hush and the way that it links in, the book that she is writing in Hush is called Midnight Mass, And the author of the book is Kate Siegel, who plays the main character in the TV show Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. And her best friend is the actress who plays Bev Keen in Midnight Mass. So in my in my little like justification brain, I have decided that the reason Midnight Mass is so imperfect is that it is the unfinished manuscript of the woman who has been attacked in her home and has not been able to finish her book. And this is her universe you're living in. She's the author insert and the main character in this story. And it's about her life of religious trauma. So it is an imperfect story. And that's sort of my justification. And I know that it's probably bullshit. And it's clearly just Mike Flanagan trying to recreate the shit that Stephen King was known for. Where, like, he has his own King universe and everything is interconnected in, like throwaway situations where it's like, oh, I used to go to Derry all the time, but then those murders started happening. And then it's never mentioned again, but you know that, like, it is connected to, like, fucking Cujo or whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the king worship is, is And I more know more that obvious. that's, like, it's... Yeah, and I know that that's, like, clearly the 100% simple explanation, but I just have so much endearment for Mike Flanagan's work that I, I need to, like, jump through fucking hoops to justify it. And I think it's interesting conceptually that the the idea of this being, like, the unfinished manuscript of a woman who is attacked in her home, and this is, like, now you've jumped into that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we should move into the main event Uh-oh. Uh, and try to get this going. <laughs> this is where it gets hard God, to I'm talk. I'm more excited about your movie. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just scared of the, the timing. I'm like, we're all like, let's do it. Probably like let's totally go. crashed let's at go. this point. We got this. That's fine. So we watched my suggestion, which was the master by Paul Thomas Anderson starring Joaquin Phoenix and a huge array of other famous actors. It was made in 2012-ish, 2012, 2013. And it is about a kind of Church of Scientology, the beginning of a Church of Scientology lookalike cult or like, not lookalike, but you know what I mean, like a... It's it's like almost yeah. directly, uh, yeah, like Scientology. Yeah, I love that he's like, oh, it's it's very loosely like one of the things it's based on is Scientology, but it's super loose. And then you watch the movie and you're like, this whole thing is just fucking Scientology. What are you talking yeah. about? You just didn't want to get sued. It's Scientology. It just it's directly like just the scathing criticism on Scientology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I actually think it's kind of hard to summarize the movie because it's not it's not even like time jumps. It's weirdly like I'm already going to say a sort of theory like I'm perhaps you two have your own theories. It's like why the movie is so like chaotic in its like timeline. It almost feels in a way like you're seeing it from the perspective as though not even necessarily. So Joaquin Phoenix plays a character named Freddie Quell. Quell. And he becomes a very prominent member of this cult who is led by the master played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is on, I mean, both him, every actor in this is incredible, but like him and Joaquin Phoenix are just like, like they're, it it gets to the point of overacting. I agree that everyone in it is incredible. And yet somehow they were incredible (laughs) in the most fucking boring way possible. Mm. Yeah. Like everyone takes a backseat. Oh, it's not an entertaining movie. It's not an entertaining movie. Sure. Sure. But usually like something on the screen has entertainment and just Mm. like I everything. I don't know. Everything was bland. Everything felt like lightly salted boiled potatoes. I feel like I feel like I'm quickly becoming the dark horse in these conversations because I really liked it. I actually I actually could not stop. What like I I couldn't look away. I don't know. Oh, I thought it was very good. I I, I mean, like I I I don't think it was boring or bland. I thought I like I couldn't I could not stop watching. I I think it's I think it's an odd movie because like you said about time in it. It's it, there's no time jumps. There's no time travel. But it's it it almost like there's this perspectival thing that I've never quite seen done before. Yeah, where you feel like you're missing information because you're you can't see outside the cult it, in a it, way. It, well, because it it feels like from when you see him doing these personality tests and they like ask him to remember certain things, it seems like what you're seeing are the manipulated memories that he's experiencing in real time through this cult. They're just not doing any kind of like specific direction saying that that's the case, but I feel like because we've seen them we see them do these conversations with him where they ask him to recall memories and they use these like neuro-linguistic sort of prompts to like retool his memories or his wants or his desires or his reactions. I really think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's like these are memories and he's sort of re-elevating them to his consciousness in real time with the cult, but they're sort of, they're just slightly readjusting them. I think so they um, don't feel quite right. I think uh, I think I, I was going to say something similar, but I, I was actually going to lean kind of the opposite direction where I think the reason that the pacing of the movie is so scattered is because I think it's supposed to function like traumatic memory where mm. it's 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 right. stuck to he, he's stuck both as a person and and like a, sorry, his character, but as well as like the events of the movie, he's stuck on these recurring negative events and not necessarily negative but just high emotion and the the intermediate points between them are the ones where he's binging alcohol to kind of get him through to the next major event and it seems to be the only time you see him somewhat sober uh and and not sober like um that he's clean from booze but sober and that he's like lucid enough to function um, right i i think and I don't want to get too speculative here. I'm not a film critic uh, professionally, but I, I honestly think that's the intention. And I think they succeed, but um, almost by virtue of having to have a plot in there that doesn't actually go somewhere. Because otherwise they can't tell such a concise story with someone who's 
in as many pieces as Joaquin Phoenix. From the way I see it, it's very much like one person falling together very, very slowly. And not through any help of the Scientologist adjacent people, but almost by having to be reintroduced to his own traumas repeatedly, having to relive them and maybe build up some kind of like a exposure therapy, like not a thicker skin. Not, that's not how that works. But he, he is developing better coping mechanisms by being repeatedly mm-hmm. traumatized. And like breaking mm. down his reactive triggers. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they're subjecting someone who's so severely traumatized to traumas that are gentler than the ones he knows. And in the end, he, th- there is someone who is slightly more cohesive. If you want to, if I, if, if I'm going to be verbose about this, I don't know. I really liked it. I don't think I could, I couldn't stop looking away from it. Yeah. There's, I, th- I think going off the thread you're pulling there, it's like, I think what really solidified something for me is by the end. And this question of either you, leave the cult and like he he sort of leaves the cult for a while and um comes back and he's like either you leave the cult forever now and in every lifetime from now on you'll be my sworn enemy or you come back into the fold forever as a completely committed follower and that and i mean he almost says it in exactly this exact way it's like you'll never not find a master out there so why not choose me and that directness is actually not as apparent in earlier scenes, but that is sort of the culmination. Like at that scene becomes an ultimatum that makes sense to that character. Who's a character who is actually what I think uh, Freddie Quell is a character who's actually one of the most free spirited types of individuals, as much as he's a bad person in other ways, he's a very free spirited individual of individual who most wants to go on the seas, most wants to do other things in life. And it's like, it doesn't mean that he's, searching for meaning and like will attach to a cult easily or is it that he's like a fundamentally free-spirited person and this to me is like one of the conflicts in his character and i think that's why the challenge of him to the cult leader is an interesting one because it's like if he can get freddie who's not exactly a skeptic but like a he's a tough nut he's emotionally not a easily loyal devoted follower but there's ways in which he can be molded well and that for some reason that ability to any bit of work he puts in freddie returns like the energy between them is so strong mm-hmm. you almost get this feeling that like the master or philip seymour hoffman could not exist without his followers like in a way he feeds so highly off the energy i think and freddie is like the ultimate version because he has some of his children are extremely devoted followers of him. Amy Adams' character is like the embodiment. I thought like maybe Freddie would become the, I think it's called this sometimes, the like, the true believer. That's what it's called. So like every cult has like a couple at least of these, uh, the true believers at the top. And that's a very important one for the cult leaders like image and feeling. Amy Adams' character is one of those. And so I thought Freddie would be too, but in a way he's like more complex in that his deviance energizes the cult like that much more to, to have this strange familiar like the 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 father-son relationship between them like or the adoptive father-son really is so strong as this like the emotion you feel about their relationship through the movie is like you're so aware that both characters are extremely well on the one hand like broken tra- traumatized one on the other hand manipulative narcissistic all these other things and yet 
there isn't almost naive beauty to their emotional connection together. Like when they do play together, when they do have moments of hug, like there's certain hugs, certain things that are so powerful as emotional moments that made me feel like, no, I don't want them to leave each other. I don't want, like, I think this is. Well, and I think that's, that's kind of like the crux of it because Freddie so badly wants to be accepted. Yeah. To the point where, like, he will fundamentally change himself or try to and agonize over trying to change himself. But Philip Seymour Hoffman's character seems to so badly not just want somebody devoted to him, but somebody like a son. Because his own son, Jesse Plemons' character, doesn't look up to his father, doesn't trust him, doesn't believe in his ideas. And I, I don't even so much think... That, you know, the master character, Philip Seymour Hoffman, is as concerned with people 100% believing in his weird religious science idea as he is just wanting that level of devotion, wanting to be somebody's hero. Oh, absolutely. And he can do that for Freddie. And that's why Freddie gets the second chances when the rest of the family wants him kicked out for being too violent and aggressive and unpredictable and unable to change. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to get rid of him because... Freddie is the only one that looks up to him in that way. The rest seem to be true believers, but they're they're just kind of there. They don't have the same kind of like childlike wonder that Freddie gives him. Yeah, there's a functional love there that isn't replicated anywhere else in the movie. And I think it's a theme that they try to touch on a few times because both Freddie and a couple other characters are shown to be in love. There's actually a wedding scene at one point, and I think... To kind of, I think, validate both of your points, I think, I think the like a cult, especially one like theirs, doesn't function unless there's a demon to slay. You know what I mean? And Freddy kind of embodies all of the vice, all of the chaos, all of the unspoken regrets and desires that I think they're trying to kind of purge themselves of in mm-hmm. one physical being. And I think there is like definitely a clinical element of like the master needing someone like that to hypothesize with but also like the the duality that i was fo- kept focusing on throughout the whole movie was that freddie was yes he was like ruinous yes he was a rascal and he was troublesome and criminal but he was also the only honest character in the movie who just did what felt best like a perfect hedonist but also one who was self-destructive just needed to do exactly what felt good to get through because he could not take life straight and everyone else you meet uh, whether it's the the cynic, uh, not the cynic, I guess, the skeptic um, who walks into like one of the cult meetings and says like, no, this is all just hypnotism. Or it's the cult members themselves or the people within the cult who have their doubts, who are self like lying to themselves, like the daughter of the master who is married off, who goes to cheat on her husband with Freddie. Everyone's lying to themselves. Everyone's finding a way to mm. to compress themselves into this perfect, organized set of events and character traits and Freddy's the only one who cannot be stacked. I think that's a bit of a ramble, but I don't know. That's where I kept kind of falling in the movie was I kept seeing Freddy as the diametric like antithesis of them. He is truly like the biblical Satan versus God. There's order and chaos. It's a really cool dynamic and you see it play out every time that there's like the one-on-one interactions between the master and Freddy it's so clear that it, Batman and Joker, they just simply cannot live without the other. I, yeah, it's, I, I don't think that's a movie I emotionally connected with much, but 
it's a movie that when I when watching it, like it's you know I've seen a few documentaries about cults. I saw the Waco. It's not a documentary. It's like a show that's Mini about series. real events. Mm-hmm. Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> and you know it's like there's a way in which those do show and speak from the outsider, speak from an outside perspective. How could someone get into a cult? This, even though I didn't feel the emotions that strongly, this puts you in a situation of like cult mentality and in like a very rich, sophisticated way, mm-hmm. which I know just saying it in that way doesn't, it doesn't do justice to what they're doing. Like it's like you take a a real character drama that you would normally be drawn into. But in this case, it's with people with highly dysfunctional minds. Yeah, it was almost romantic and in so that sense. You, how the question from the creator's point of view, is like how to get an audience to believe in what these characters are doing, even though you would never agree to, to with these cult members or what they're saying or what they're doing. If at any moment you pull back from the movie, you can see how absolutely ridiculous, how many lies, how much deceit is being put into every scene and every thing. But when, when you fall into an empathy with one of the characters on screen, it feels very real, like going through processing, for example, or going through these mental exercises. There's a reality, emotional reality to that moment of this idea of like speaking perfect honesty as much as you can or regressing into your memories or practicing your concentration or your men, uh, mental uh abilities by like you know people say triggering things to you don't respond people say are trying to break your concentration keep concentrated keep your eyes open for this uh keep going back and forth between this wall and that window in order to how long can you deal with that boredom or that imaginative use of energy right and all these things it's like they're so close to in a way real therapeutic practices or real Things and in a way he's self-medicating yeah. too. So you could say in a way there's a accidentally the medication aspect of mental illness, but it's all in this hyper toxic, hyper filled with people who have no idea what they're doing or how to do these things, right? But because some of it does things, what those things are is hard to quantify. Well, but they and do things is freaky. Ultimately, their goal is not to make Freddie healthy. Their goal no. is to make Freddie dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, Absolutely. they're very effective at that because he yeah. is healthy with them. He's as healthy as he has ever been mentally. I, I mean, he's still not well, but he's as mentally healthy as he has ever been when he's in their presence. And when he tries to leave, he is a failure. And so he has to try to come back mm-hmm. because it's the only time he can access any sort of stability in his life. And he's come to associate these people with mental wellness because they've manipulated him into such a situation where like family support structure and mental wellness only exist in the confines of the cult. And no one has ever offered him help outside of it. This is a great movie for explaining what people mean. And now like this term has been thrown about way too much to become useless now. But like this is maximum toxicity environment. Like when people talk about being in a toxic family or being in toxic relationships, this is the because it's like there are ways in which toxic relationships feed something in the different people in it. That's the dangerous part. It's not as though nothing is gained or like nothing holds these people together, but rather that it's a dysfunctional cycle, which reinforces itself in the worst ways. And that's what's so 
tricky about it. And it's one of the things I can most appreciate about the movie. Like I, for example, got, it's a thing that's talked about all the time, but that idea of where what the cult leader will do or what a cult will do is always tell you the real answers are on the horizon, right? Such a good trick. And Freddy is on it, like on that trick mm -hmm. at all times. You know, he's always like, well, he's living he's day not, to day. But he's never like saying, I'm looking for the answer. But he's like, once an answer is set, like when they go to this big conference and an answer is supposed to be proposed, you can see he has a breaking point because he's like, were those answers? He has to say, he says nothing about it, but other characters begin commentating on it and he freaks out. He just, he's just like, I don't know. There's just something where you're, it's not about him explaining what's going on. Like it's almost an anti-exposition movie the main characters don't expose or don't explain things other characters become skeptical or say small things on the periphery that are the usual audience stand in things like i have a question about why this changed you know it's like i'm skeptical about the whole cult or don't you see this relationship is going badly but those characters are immediately dismissed and narcissistic out of way like if you don't commit to the doctrine you're fucking you know you're just not part of this mission yeah you just feel it. You feel why this works. Yeah, it's almost it's almost too effective at the one part where it's almost it's almost impossible to focus on even the minute character moments because the cult is so necessary for the actual progression of the plot. Without them, there isn't even actually a resolution to like the whole cult plot line, of course, because it's not about that. But it's engrossing in its own sense. Like it almost deserves its own analysis in that in that in that way. I just can't help but focus on there's one scene in particular where the first time that uh, Freddy is processed mm. and it's like one long shot for shot take of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix just going at it across the table. And it's like, man, what a just tour de force of acting that between the two of them. It's uh, astounding. Yeah, I those moments of acting, I do this is one of my big troubles with the movie and, and this often happens to me with like very like acted movies. It's like, it moves from like movie space to place like, uh, like I, when I've seen good theater productions in the sense of like, you feel more in a room with actors than you do feel transported to a different place. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I can appreciate how good the acting is doing, but I don't want to be thinking about how much I'm appreciating the acting. I just want to be there in the moment. And I don't know what, exactly moves me on but it's often these like scenes that were obviously made for actors to act in yeah if there's fewer it's and always they're, better. they're the scenes that win oscars but they're also the scenes that most make me think like okay how often do these things happen in real life i i i, I feel like for me i i that scene did did it for me i felt like i was transported mm -hmm. um it's probably the first time i felt like i fell into the movie but um mm. that actually does beg the midnight mass comparison because it did Although the scene was like made to be acted in, and it was probably the most direct example of like like we're gonna take the the the, the walls off the edge of the screen, and you have to kind of like you have to you have to peer a little bit deeper to see what's um what we're trying to set up for you. But I feel like they did a good job of setting it up, and and it, conversely to make the Midnight Mass reference, uh, where that movie was like monologue heavy and would focus on the intimate character moments, and the camera would pull in. This felt less like it was trying to make me feel anything in particular it was just like let's just see what happens kind of thing it was almost tense like in a in a, mm -hmm. it was tense but it was almost tense in like a horror movie way or like a thriller kind of way where i was expecting violence or worse mm. but it never came it was just it, it was the tension without the catharsis it was really interesting 
I get it though. It, it sometimes feels like Oscar bait or whatever the, the corresponding award would be. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I didn't even mean it that way, but yeah. I think anything with that level of cast is always trying to be Oscar yeah. bait. I mean, you don't pay that kind of money for yeah. those stars, especially in the in the level of role some of them were in without the goal of winning awards, yeah. re- realistically, right? Because you've got Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Rami Malek, early-ish in his career, but you could tell he was like very much a rising star. Same with Jesse Plemons, very much a rising star. Uh, Laura yeah, And they, they were both given very small roles in comparison, yeah. but they're both solid. Yeah, and they're, they're, never, they're, they're never foreground. They're always background. It's really actually funny how badly, they, or not badly, but how little they use some of those characters. That's the thing. I was. I'm. Say, I feel like there's got to be a cut Jesse, Jesse Plemons scene because it's like I don't know spoilers, but like by the end of the movie, you're very much on the impression that like he's resigned to join the cult, I guess. But they really do no exposition on it. They're just like, oh, he's just there, and it's like, but you had a big moment where he says like, no, my father's a joke. Can't you just tell he's lying all the time? Like I'm just here, right? But it's like maybe that's all you need. Like maybe that's. That's why whatever other scenes he had was cut or nothing else was necessary because it's just like you get it. You get what his purpose was just from those two scenes. Yeah, you almost you almost have to wonder like what didn't make it in because the movie isn't concise just because the way that it's been cut. But you yeah. get the sense that um, a lot of the relationships feel longstanding, like the, the scenes feel lived in and it feels like there's a lot of context that is inferred. Uh, and they give you enough information to do so, but also, yeah, like, it's fucking stacked. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't think the movie should have had multiple characters joining the cult or whatever and, and how that's working or whatever. But at the same time, I think because you're 80% of the movie is Joaquin Phoenix, you have to love his character to some degree or something. And I didn't like I don't like that type of scoundrelous person that much. So even though I very much appreciate what his purpose is and, and how well of a character it like plays a very interesting role. It's not a journey. I care about. And it's also a, that exact journey obviously hasn't been done like perfectly, but it is very much the type of movie that's been praised historically forever, right? Like white men having intense, serious psychological stuff going on. Right. And I'd say like in terms of entertainment, it reminds me of, uh, I'm really loving, and I've mentioned many times in the podcast, I'm really loving right now Succession TV show, my new greatest TV show on television right now. You know, That has a similar thing, but a much more entertaining structure where it's about like a narcissistic father and his children vying for power. It's But it's much more straightforward and like fun and character studies. Here, as you're saying, there's something structurally that's very unique to the master that is interesting, but also not entertaining i i I guess that's just just where i'm left with the movie like i super appreciate that this is very interesting but i didn't have a good time i okay it's really weird to bring this up now but like can we just like take a minute to talk about how much weird unattractive nudity there is in this movie oh god yes go ahead i just bizarre it's, it's not even that like it's trying to make naked women look gross like women are gross it feels very much like a framing thing like the way it's filmed it's just all of the nudity is unpleasant it's unsexual all of it it's really it's really interesting even even when it is sexual it's still unpleasant like when he's in that like 
back room with his girlfriend and he's mm-hmm. hoking her nipples and like it's supposed to be like a playful sexy scene it's weird it's like childish and not attractive like whenever there is a sex scene it's not attractive you see full bush in this movie and it's still like i didn't want that yeah I, it's a lot of nudity I think it makes a lot of sense the way that they portray it because it's it's so clearly one of freddie's hang-ups that that mm-hmm. he just he cannot he's very prudish in a way <laughs> um he, he just can't can't help but focus on sex and the intro of the movie is him fucking a sand mermaid uh, a point where he molests a, a glass window pretending it's a mannequin and instead of yeah. that's his point of comparison i don't know i think i think they did it unsexy and i think it really works for that reason not not that it's like yeah i guess i should it's not flattering that's for certain i should not have said it as just like a flipping common thing it's like what i mean is he has that like here's here's my take on the nudity and i'm frustrated with it only because it it's just so it reminds me of taxi driver it reminds me of so much like there are many men in the world, many straight men who have a lot of hangups about women and like the sex they can or cannot have and their control over sex in life. And it, you know, his dream outside of the outside of the cult in the movie is it reminds me of like baby driver and stuff, too. But I, I don't like this mindset. It's like there's a girl. I mean, this they make it like so toxic in this one or so weird and gross in this one where it's like he's, you know, virgin 45 in this movie looking and he has a girlfriend who's 16 and is like in love with you. Have, I don't I could not believe the conversation he has with that girl's mom. I do not understand what was going on there. Why she was so cool with him being her lover. 1950s as my guess. I don't know. <laughs> that was his. Th- he's like, I. you know, why am I not going back and just being with with a woman but it's like there's so many of these like highly acclaimed movies where it's like the honesty of men. it's like thank god we've got honest men explaining that what's going on in straight men's minds is like horrible treatment of women seeing them just as sexual objects objects who are like coercing their lives or like not providing them with the tenderness and love they want and desire and feel the need for control over but that's portrayed or internalized for them as like my long lost love or the thing I always deserved or my one element missing in my life. And I can't necessarily fully reconcile that, like why he's seeing woman in the way he does in the thing. But he has these very obviously extremes on both ends towards women where he's very like, you know, one of the first scenes of the movie is he's fingering a a sand woman, uh, like a sand castle of a woman. And then in other scenes, someone says something gross about a woman and he's just like, do not speak to me in that way. Like with like, do not speak of a woman in that way around me. Like the idea of a woman being spoken about sexually or, you know, whatever is too, too much. Yeah, there's something like weirdly. And, and I think this is intentional. He's, he's meant to be sort of childish in a way. There is very mm. much a child, a childlike quality to him. And I see that reflected in his relationship with the master, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and that sort of like father-son dynamic where it feels very much like he's a little boy in that interactions. His humor, his attention span, he feels very much like a child in a grown man's body. But I see that a lot in his in his romantic and sexual interactions as well. Like he can't. I did not think of it that way, but yes, very much. Yeah, so. he can't not giggle when he sees a woman's breasts. Like when he's distracted and daydreaming, it's like a 
pubescent boy and he pictures all the women in the room nude um, and it makes him smile or it makes him like really uncomfortable. Someone touches him sexually in like an inappropriate situation and he's like super embarrassed and, and shy about it. And like just all of these slightly more childish reactions to situations like you can tell he is a person is sexual and yet sexuality makes him uncomfortable in the way that it would make you know a a tween boy uncomfortable you know he's curious about it but he feels weird about the way he's interacting with it i heard about recently how one therapeutic technique is to if you have trauma from your childhood, you can, the therapy, this I found strange. It makes sense, but I'm, I'm like, this seems like you'd have to sign a lot of consent forms or something, but it's like the therapist can kind of act as a surrogate parent. And so you go and relive the memory. You say the things you said, but this time the therapist says the right things to you to redevelop that secure attachment and, and redevelop those memories. And there's something of that dynamic in a very dysfunctional way here where he so badly wants Philip Seymour Hoffman to be a right father, him to, to provide meaning, to provide stability in his life that he hasn't had. But I didn't think of it this way, but not only that father son, but that how much of a child he still is, how unable he has been to emotionally develop. Mm. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is really well done that with the way they, they frame that because it's um kind of pervasive through everything you see that he's like resourceful and sneaky in a way that it's almost like like a teenager yeah like he's like mm-hmm. he he's developed these really unique talents for things like making booze out of anything <laughs> just to just to get by uh, i would need to be on so much lsd to let my therapist talk to me like my parents <laughs> i would not oh man there's a th- there used to be i don't know if they do it anymore but there used to be a therapeutic technique where they like relive your birth I'm good. Mm. I never asked to yeah, be born. Yeah, they put you in like this big like blanket <laughs> sack thing and, and it's supposed to be like a womb and then they like push you out of it. Uh, so you can, like It's like a nah. rebirth therapy. I thing. exist without my The consent. Scientology version of that is to relive the Garden of Eden moment uh, where you finally get rid of original sin. The Thetans. Get them out of you or in you. I don't know. No, you just you just throw people in. Oh, the Garden of Eden's only 6,000 years ago. They're, they're talking trillions of years. Oh, you know? well, well, the Scientologist, what... Isn't there a volcano situation with I alien mean, ghosts? It's full of ghosts. I do want to read up on this stuff only so that I could talk about this stuff properly. Because, yeah, I have some vague notions that there's this god named Zenu and there's a, a volcano of souls. But, like, I don't know. Yeah, like, Zenu is, like, a god, but also, like, an alien emperor. Yeah. Um, And, like, or, and, he and threw... Is it like, maybe Zenu's, like, the evil one, and there is, like, I don't know. god but he, th- he, but he threw a bunch of aliens into a volcano on Earth, mm. and they died, and then their ghosts came out, and then their ghosts entered that, humans, our... and those are right. the Thetans. Mm. Alien ghosts are what Thetans are, and that's why you have to get rid of them. I truly and completely learned this from South Park. And have heard that it was very well researched for the episode, but I don't know how accurate it is. So, but I mean, their Mormon episode was like exactly right. So, uh, got ghosts in your blood. Gotta get them out. You should do some cocaine about it. Just might. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad I finally got to see this. Was a movie on my list for a a long time. I'm glad I got to see it. But it it came out kind of how I expected, where I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this. I I don't think I was ever going to like it. But I was like, I knew it would be at least feel different than anything else I'd ever watched. 
So I was like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Something. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretentious bullshit. And like I, anything I, called I, Thomas. Anderson once I found out Amy Adams was in it too, I just, I'm basically collecting all of Amy Adams mm. filmography. I just, I love her so much. And so it's like, I've almost watched everything she's ever been in at this point. Damn. I mean, it isn't that many things. It's only like 10 things or so, but no, I actually, I can even think of like ones. I was like, there's that one hillbilly Ellert eulogies. Oh, hillbilly and elegy. I, like, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. That looks bad. Yeah. Her and, uh, and then I got close. bad reviews and I was like, you know, I don't know. I could just, well, yeah. That. And it's basically just shitting on every single person that lives in like Appalachia. Mm. So <laughs> you're laughing so much harder than I feel like you should. Should be sorry, <laughs> just shitting on people um, who live in Appalachia. No, and it's, it's not even like even <laughs> yeah. It, it is that that was like the major criticism is like every every like bad take I've I've seen. Well, no, I mean it didn't get good reviews regardless. It's not a good movie, but like all the really scathing reviews I've seen are people from like the Appalachias being like this is fucking shameful. Mm-hmm. The way they're speaking about everyone who lives here. Like, we're all, like, methed out hillbillies and, like, all on welfare and we're all a strain on the system. And I'm like, that's valid. Like, I'd be pissed about that, too, if somebody was, like, giving this really shitty negative perception. I think it's I think it's Chloe Zhao's um, Nomadland. But I actually I really like Nomadland, which was. Um, Nomadland also got some pretty heavy critique about how it interacted with like the actual nomadic people that it cast. Mm, Yeah, I my it's funny. The critique that I was sort of thought was interesting of it is that like it even though they're obviously living and it's like there's a lot of tough living and all this stuff in the movie and it's a critique of capitalism. But it's weird in a way that it's like there's a way in which their lifestyle is also heavily romanticized in the movies. And it's like surely some people do live decent lives just like some people become millionaires from being poor but it's like when you're talking at it depends if you're if the movie is supposed to be critique at the systematic level that being poor is not a good and that society should do something about it but at the same time tries to portray a lot of good aspects about the lifestyle it enters a difficult space where it's like you have to be able to to understand both points like separately and and, and yeah. then conjoin them together. And that's a little bit tough. I think with Nomadland, a lot of the extras in it are people who live that like nomadic mm. lifestyle. And many of them choose to remain in that traveler lifestyle. Like they, right. they prefer it. Um, they prefer being off the grid. They prefer living like within tighter means and traveling and all that shit, which, you know, good for them, whatever. But, you know, they're paid a pittance because they're extras. The movie is completely about their lifestyle and is capitalizing and monetizing Mm. their lifestyle while critiquing capitalism and critiquing their values. And they made nothing off of it. All right. Before we tangent too far further, does anyone have any final thoughts? I think I already said mine on the master. Um, no, I don't think I do. I liked it all the way through. How about the emotional, connection thing because you said you really liked it and so it's like is that because of an emotional connection or is it some other level that really spoke to you um i guess a bit of both no i i saw a lot of um i saw a lot of parallels in it that were uncomfortable but also ones that were uh, neatly explored yeah leave on that 
enigmatic note. <laughs> if you want to talk to us, you can find us at Fans Lab Pod on Twitter. And we might soon, perhaps, who knows when this is going up to, <laughs> be, be putting out more TikToks again. And uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you. Love to hear suggestions. We're very open to hearing about new movies, hearing about what's going on, all sorts of stuff. Or tell us what you want us to watch. Uh, so thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.